You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Really interesting episode ahead for you today. We are going to talk about K-pop and mobilization, grassroots efforts, just proof that the power of K-pop fandom exists on the internet, but way beyond that as well. The power of fandoms in the K-pop world to make concrete impacts on the real world. And then we'll dive into some of the the psychology and sociology behind it, reasons why that spirit is present, particularly in those fandoms. But if you want to get kind of a baseline understanding of some concepts we'll talk about today, a quick refresher memory a little here, but you could also catch these episodes. The How to Stand episode called Cyber Dog and Hello Kitty. The How to Stand episode Miku Holograms and a Redefining of Reality. The How to Stand episode called Comics and Superheroes. Then the 17 Karat K-Pop episodes K-Pod Save the World, Excalibur, and Crown. Those are the ones I would turn to next. Quick recap, though, from the How to Stand Comics and Superheroes episode. I talked about how it's so odd and ironic to me how much pop culture interests are belittled, viewed as silly or a teenage phase or whatever. Fandom culture is viewed as just this weird, obsessive, temporary phase of your life, juvenile endeavors, and your whole inner world and digital world. Like, nothing to do with the real world, which is always so bonkers to me because our whole world is shaped by pop culture. It has this extreme pull. It affects people. It affects their emotions. It affects the way they think about other people in situations. And then in turn shapes those situations. Then it causes these ripple effects affecting how communities think, how countries think. And pop culture can be a really interesting tool for pushing certain values, certain ways of looking at the world, often subliminally. And I don't necessarily mean in a nefarious way, but just in an indirect way. So like in that How to Stand episode called Comics and Superheroes, I talk about how there's actually quite a detailed history of times famous cartoons were used in political campaigns. In the 40s, FDR sent 17 people to serve as citizen diplomats, including Walt Disney and some musicians and other artists. There are other acts of more directly what they call comics diplomacy. Using comic books to spread a certain ideology, a certain worldview, The U.S. Embassy in Beijing led this American Animation and Comics Month, the social media campaign led by the National Cartoonist Society. Then there's Pat Badgley, a cartoonist the U.S. Embassy in Seoul invited to give lectures to the embassy on using cartoons to teach about principles related to free speech. Then there's Alice in Wonderland, who makes frequent appearances in satire and other political content in the U.K., Then there's the kawaii trend against terrorism. Quick refresh of that story. After ISIS beheaded two journalists, some retaliation came in the form of meme warfare, spamming hashtags and making their presence inescapable. Their enemies would have to see their content, and it really took the wind out of their sails. As silly as that sounds, if you think about it, it makes sense. When we memeify something, when we make it go viral, we're kind of subverting how pop culture has been viewed all along. Taking the accusations that it's this stupid, silly thing and saying, you're right, let's make it stupider and sillier and change the narrative, delegitimize our opponents, make this whole thing seem silly, make them no longer look macho and intimidating, but turn their campaign into a joke, into a meme. Flood the internet, not with their propaganda, but whenever anyone tries to look up their propaganda, certain hashtags and stuff, all they see are your memes and other prank content. To shift the discussion and turn it around on your opponent to just make them look goofy, kawaii content has actually routinely been used for that purpose. 
So many more examples I've talked about over time on the show. In the Shrek episode of How to Stand, I also touch on Clone High and how some Clone High fans actually had this big in-person protest against Clone High's portrayal of the Gandhi character. I could go on and on, but the point is, fandoms are such interesting bellwethers and arbiters, discussion leaders, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, but our interests and our activities are very real, with lasting impacts, and therefore deserve not to be belittled. I go into more of the history of using pop culture soft power to shape the world, really, in those early How to Stand episodes I listed before. All to say, ultimately, that fandoms ought to acknowledge and realize their power. K-pop fans certainly have. Not just in sheer numbers, but the diversity of demographics, but also interests and skills from networking skills to digital ad making to being essentially a treasurer for fundraisers. They find a way to get all sorts of people on board these massive group projects. They've been so good at mobilization. So let's talk about some of the many examples of times, for better and for worse, that K-pop fandoms have fully activated this power to make change offline in quote-unquote the real world. We have to go back to the 90s. Remember before, it's not like South Korea didn't have new music out, but it was mostly the popular stuff was trot and ballads. South Korean pop music as an official market was not even a thing, let alone using its soft power to the fullest, until the 90s, when SM Entertainment brought us Sataiji and Boys. They quickly became nicknamed President of Culture. And from this first K-pop fandom, called the Taiji Mania, the organizing power of fans was being shown. They raised money and awareness for Brazilian rainforests. They advocated for musicians' rights, led the charge for certain South Korean copyright laws, a host of different political and social issues they took a stand on. Particularly impressive, given that the internet was not in its heyday yet, the power of fandoms was further made public knowledge in 98 when H.O.T. had this first-of-its-kind idol concert. The fan loyalty was just on full display. This was the first time for a big Korean pop act that fans camped out overnight in anticipation. The downsides of this budding fan passion, though, were quickly felt when H.O.T. fans clashed with Zexky's fans. These two first-generation idol groups, they were both working at the same music show one day, both set on the lineup, so fans of both acts showed up. Again, keep in mind that this is the turn of the century, a time before mass social media got the word out, so it's actually very impressive that 1,500 fans found out about this and stood out in the rain to catch a glimpse of them. They ended up using their umbrellas against each other. The feuding fandoms really literally went to blows, hit each other with their umbrellas, turned them into weapons. It was a big deal. It really showed the intensity of fans' sense of loyalty that their fandom is better than yours. In 2007 and 2008, Reigns fans were really showing how you could use that fan intensity for better ends. Rain was in a movie called I'm a Cyborg, But That's Okay which made him a special guest at the Berlin International Film Festival. His fans actually took it upon themselves to make their own promotional posters for this movie, and some of them even flew to this film fest just to hand out flyers promoting his movie. Not paid or anything, totally grassroots, genuine fan activity. And then the following year, his fans donated $2,500 to Singapore's Disability Sports Council in Rain's name. The following year, 2009, a massive trial took place that changed K-pop and their contracts forever. We'll get back to that in a second, but back to 2007 for a second. Xinhua fans are thought to have started the fan rice trend, so instead of sending bouquets of flowers, they would send their idols what they called fan rice, hundreds of kilograms of rice sent to a charity in their fave's name. Some may argue TVXQ fans were first to do this right around the same time those fandoms started making rice donations, a replacement for sending wreaths, flowers, or other good luck gifts. In June 2011, the first of its kind SM Town Live show was going to be held in Europe. First big SM Town show in Europe ever in Paris. Featuring the five biggest SM Entertainment artists at the time, TVXQ, Shiny, Super Junior, FX, and Girls' Generation. 
Over 14,000 people showed up. Tickets sold out in just 15 minutes. And hundreds of fans who missed out on tickets and still wanted to get in held a flash mob protest in Paris, demanding SM Entertainment add a second date to this show. And they did. It's such a fun example of how you can use something as lighthearted as a flash mob to make real change. And they did. They changed their, their faves calendar. One of the biggest K-pop companies ever changed their schedule for five of their biggest artists. I think that's a pretty big deal. And I would argue persuasion by flash mob should be way more normalized by now. In 2012, Taiji Mania raised 39 million won in honor of Sataiji's 20-year anniversary, money that would go to what they have branded the Sataiji Forest in Brazil. Sataiji himself actually caught wind of this project and pledged his own donation in 2015. Again, this was celebrating the group's 20-year anniversary. It's a great example of how this is not some fad. These fans are here to stick around, and not just for the music, but for the community and the charity too. Since then, in the years after, up until now and surely in the future, so much has happened. So many different causes. K-pop fandoms have found ways to galvanize each other to do everything from raising money to making other kinds of donations to spreading awareness about social issues, circulating petitions, encouraging each other to donate blood, sending gifts to their faves. So not just charity work to anyone, but making big happy birthday parties or projects for their fave taking over social media with certain hashtags, streaming parties, group orders of albums, renting space on billboards, buses, etc. to put up ads for their faves' work. All of this unpaid PR work for their faves. If you want a few more specific examples, last year, when GOT7 was not even active as a group, member BNBM had his birthday celebrated by his fans donating to and organizing this big food pantry in the Philippines. After Sehun from XO spent one Children's Day volunteering at an orphanage, fans suddenly became regular volunteers there too, which continues to this day. When Super Junior celebrated their 11-year anniversary, fans sent 110 kilograms of rice and 1,106 ramen noodle packs to Salvation Army. Japanese TVXQ fans came together to raise 10 million won under Yuno's name to an orphanage, Block B fans helped raise money to build a well in Cambodia. I could go on and on. Really cool what happens when you put your heads together. Let's get back to that big lawsuit I teased earlier. July 31st, 2009, three members of TVXQ filed a lawsuit against SM Entertainment. This is the infamous quote-unquote slave contract lawsuit, which eventually would lead to the reduction from 13 to 7-year contracts. Fans actually shaped what came to light during and after this trial. Long story short, TVXQ members were arguing these contracts were so unethical they were downright illegal, and they had been blocked from certain individual promotional activity. SM Entertainment framed this as a court case really just about breach of contract, kind of sidestepping the work condition concerns and saying, no, this law is about the fact that they went behind our backs to promote a cosmetics company, do other solo, money-making things on the side. A group of fans aptly titled People Who Are Against SM's Unlawful Contract formed online, circulating a petition that generated over 121,000 signatures. And then some fans took it upon themselves to distribute that petition to both governmental and non-political bodies. This was done by a group of JYJ fans. The three members who sued became JYJ. That led to a lot of conflict between those who chose sides as sticking with TVXQ versus JYJ, which we'll get to more in a minute. The court ruled partially in the members' favor, but it didn't really nullify their contracts. But it did say, hey, SM Entertainment, you need to stop interfering in their solo activities. The court ruling also further made it illegal for this unilateral scheduling, basically meaning companies cannot still legally fill up your schedule without telling you or getting input from someone else. When the verdict was reached in October 2009, the news labeled it a victory for fandom. Fans were credited with helping this outcome come to fruition. 
In April 2010, SM Entertainment countersued JYJ. And that, combined with TVXQ releasing an album for the first time without JYJ, that was a big straw that broke the camel's back moment, where fans really took sides. It symbolized this end of an era. TVXQ fans then became detectives, really, digging up all sorts of excerpts from interviews, video, audio, whatever they could that they could use to pull together the narrative that JYJ fans were exploiting TVXQ's fame to promote their own new group. They continued to also slam SM Entertainment for the lawsuit and even compiled things like a glossary of legal terms. They analyzed legal text and tried to basically be unpaid legal counsel for their faves. Then they organized this big bus campaign in the late 2011, including this big banner advocating for JYJ's freedom from SM Entertainment lawsuits and control. They paid for the ad to fit over 120 different buses. The big precedent-setting moment was in March 2011, when JYJ fans launched what is considered the first fan-run internet broadcasting service in Korean media history. This was now a fan-run message board, basically. I love JYJ.com. It actually got into hot water on the second day of its existence, though, already on day two, because they posted this video to the site of a bunch of different famous people saying nice things about the group, but featured in that montage was a right-wing politician, which drew backlash. So they issued an apology, took down the video, and flat-out killed the site. But despite the short-lived endeavor, the fact that fans realized they could promote their faves at that scale in reach an audience as big as they wanted with the internet... That was a groundbreaking moment, the most hands-on participatory fandom of the time. There's a lot more you could read into about what happened here, but I think the biggest takeaway is about not just the industry, but the fandom and how their responses to the situation actually affected the outcome. And you could say the same thing outside of K-pop. You still have the free Kesha movement. There was the free Britney movement, which kept up the pressure to free her. So this has happened, but at the time, this was really unprecedented. Fan mobilization, fan advocacy. It was also, to me, really thought-provoking because this story frames... It's an interesting framing because the fandom wanted to portray JYJ as, like, underdogs and SM Entertainment as, like, a big corporate overlord. And then TVXQ fans kind of made fun of and questioned that narrative because they're portraying JYJ as like the little guy, a helpless entity in the face of a corporate overlord, when really both parties are pretty financially well-off, well-off popularity-wise. They were both fine at the end of the day, just technically. So what's interesting, though, is how fandoms at this point realized they could start their own sites and craft their own lens through which to see news stories about their artists without going through mass media. They could become that mass media. They didn't need to get the message. They could make the message. They could shape the message. They could portray this issue as the little guy versus the corporate. They could also have people push back on that. But people were realizing what they could do with their voices online and in the name of defending their faves. Let's pivot to stories from Chile. Chile's government issued this big report in 2019, citing all of these factors they blamed for civil unrest. There were some big historic protests at the end of 2019 in Chile, super long story short, about some big systemic issues Class and wage inequality, protesters wanted a big overhaul of the system. Chile's Ministry of the Interior issued this 112-page report, where they had this team analyze and report on a bunch of data. They looked at content from over 5 million social media users during a time frame of these protests, and the report called out certain influences they thought were contributing to the social media provoking the unrest. They cited comedians, soccer players, singers, and K-pop fans. The report claims that over 19% of the analyzed posts came from outside of Chile. They assumed a lot of foreigners were making the protests more intense, stoking the opposition to the government. So this was basically their plea to quell some social media pro-protester rhetoric. This is not so much an example of K-pop fans directly making a change, but it is an interesting example of how even governments have come to the realization K-pop fans can change the tides. They have that power and it's recognized in an official report. 
And no, it didn't really work. One perpetuator of the protest was the fact that security would say, stop this protest, then they would be seen acting with force and really physically going after the protesters. And so protesters, their list of demands just added another item, justice for the victims of the brutality. And so when they put it like that, it just felt very ironic because security was saying, hey, let's put an end to the protest. But what they were doing was just agitating the crowd, making them angrier, and drawing more protesters into the streets. Eventually, the National Human Rights Institute filed over 700 legal complaints against authority figures for what they tried to do to stop the protesters. On a lighter note... They are cited in helping their young, new, liberal, millennial president, Gabriel Boric, get elected. First of all, K-pop fans were compelled to give this guy a boost on social media, even politics aside, just because he's a millennial who has very millennial and Gen Z interests. Very likable. He's a self-professed Taylor Swift superfan. He's also a BTS fan. He even answered in an interview, if you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? And he said BTS. Young people were excited about him. He injected some energy into this race. And it was also about just being against the other guy, Jose Antonio Cast. This right-wing candidate, who did really well at first, really made K-pop fans nervous, and they mobilized against him. If you're in the USA like me, it's kind of like our system of primary and general election. Quite different, but also some similarities there. But anyway, so this system, it sounds like in Chile, there's a round one and a round two. It feels like a do-over election. It's really interesting. So anyway, in round one, the right-wing candidate was in the lead. Got a lead that really spooked out people. And made them realize a lot of people just hadn't voted. Youth turnout was really low. So they decided we have to do something for round two to go better. And it did, after a big campaign, to gin up excitement for this candidate and to raise awareness about the opponent and to just get people to vote in the first place. At first, it was kind of a joke. People were just kind of laughing along with this guy who related to them. It just felt funny and surreal to see this young, millennial, BTS fan entering politics. For lack of a better word, it felt pretty cool. But it turned into this concrete form of political capital. This account, K-Poppers for Boric, led the charge. It started as a WhatsApp of six people who talked online but also offline. And this group basically did everything that K-Pop fandoms do. They made a downloadable fan sharing kit. So you could have your own light stick for this guy and other online merch and stuff. They shared edits and memes, certain hashtags, and social media trending projects. Even some Photoshop of him with favorite K-pop idols. They made digital infographics to spread the word about his policies and just kept the conversation about him going. Yes, he did notice their efforts. Even reposting a TikTok someone made set to butter by BTS that was basically an unofficial fan-made campaign ad for him. His right-wing opponent did try to get in on this energy as well, making his own quote-unquote K-pop campaign song and posting it to Twitter, but it really got roasted. People thought it was just so poor quality. The fact that it was a Spanish song made it seem even more try-hard. Like, look, I'm a cool K-pop fan too, when he clearly was just really, really trying too hard. And so his whole attempt to take some of the wind out of his opponent's sails actually probably helped the other guy more. Moving to activism among K-pop fans in the USA. As we all know, the summer of 2020 was a huge moment for the Black Lives Matter movement. Got unprecedented amounts of people out on the streets protesting in support of it. It got an unprecedented percent of Americans to say they support Black Lives Matter. It should have been way higher than the percent it was, but I digress. It was a big moment. And to keep the focus on this, social media changed a lot in that summer. Some of it was not helpful, kind of cringy and not the point, but some of it was very informative and interesting, and some was just plain funny. So there were times over that summer where certain hashtags would try to start trending, hashtags against saying Black Lives Matter. But when someone tried to look for those trending hashtags and tweets under it, they would see K-pop fan cams. K-pop videos, K-pop fan cams, memes, etc. Just K-pop content drowning out all of the stuff the people who wanted to follow those hashtags were actually looking for. Again, that's the meme warfare thing I was talking about earlier. It can actually really help deflate your opponent. 
Because their whole thing is trying to be the alpha in the situation. And if you're not taking them seriously, that really ticks them off. Then the Dallas PD app had to go away because they set it up so you could basically tattle on and submit evidence of Black Lives Matter protesters. They cited a tech issue, but we all know it was because of all the fan cams they were sent. All the K-pop videos to drown out the other stuff. Then there was the actual cold hard cash that helped too. After BTS pledged to donate $1 million to Black Lives Matter, the BTS army stepped into gear to match their $1 million donation, which they successfully did within 24 hours. K-pop fans are even credited with derailing turnout to a Trump rally. Long story short, Mary Jo Locke posted this TikTok suggesting, hey, what if we all bought tickets for this rally and then didn't show up? Be really funny to see no one there. So then someone else posted about it and another and another. They were actually very sneaky, deleting their TikToks after going viral. So after they spread the word, they're like, my work here is done, and they got rid of the evidence. So the campaign really did not have this, they didn't see this coming. The tracks were buried, so... Then another user actually posted a TikTok specifically saying, hey, can K-pop fans get in on this? You guys are just unprecedented online. Can you help this cause? Which, when called, of course we can. One video specifically asked the BTS ARMY to join in. And that video topped 300,000 views. It was kind of a success, and the turnout was really, really low. Comically low compared to their estimates. The overflow zone they set up, they had to dismantle because no, not enough people came to fill the real zone. So the overflow zone they set up was extra comical. So empty. It was super easy to do too, because all you had to do was you could get two free tickets for any registered phone number. So people would just use multiple numbers and got a ton of tickets. However... As funny and weird as this is to me, this story is actually, I'm not quite sure if K-pop fans specifically deserve this much credit. I'm just saying, I think that makes for a very great news headline, but I do think it was just TikTok users more broadly. I think just citing K-pop fans online is not the whole story. Because first of all, these tickets were free. It was kind of like a Facebook say you'll attend situation. So you really don't have much of an idea of who really is going to attend. It wasn't like you're buying tickets for a movie and absolutely no one can take your spot. This was like a general registration thing. So to say that people bought up all the tickets, I don't even think is really accurate framing. I think there was just a lack of interest, period. Plus, it was a pandemic. Still is, but this was pre-vaccine and everything. Summer of 2020, people did not want to go to a rally. They probably did influence the low turnout, but it was probably going to be low regardless. Moving on to a much more serious issue. A piece was written in cooperation between the Free Speech Project, Future Tense, and Tech Law and Security Program at the American University Washington the project was going to see how technology is influencing perceptions of free speech. And the piece actually specifically looked at how K-pop fans have started mobilizing and campaigning via social media, creating this vast array of people using their transferable skills for concrete purposes in ways that were unprecedented. And under pseudonyms, they interviewed K-pop fans in Myanmar, which underwent a coup over a year ago. These anonymous fans cited middle-of-the-night kidnappings and things like that that they feared, but they were risking it all to basically point out what was really happening in Myanmar. So this group of young people in Myanmar, between the ages of 17 and 21, have heavily relied on encrypted apps like Telegram to spread the word about what is going on, to counter disinformation, to keep the public aware in talking about this. They continue to do this, again, despite fears of being caught and kidnapped or otherwise severely punished, and working around regular internet shutoffs, and the messages the military is putting out countering theirs. They organize mass trending parties and other coordinated attempts to capitalize on the military's latest news blast and reframe it and correct the record. They're also keeping Google Docs of human rights violations and things like that. What does this have to do with K-pop? Not much, except this collective is young K-pop fans who may have bonded over a love of K-pop, but now are bonding over a big political mission. K-pop was kind of their entry point to meeting and realizing how they could all put their skills to good use as a team. 
Facebook has particularly gained prominence in Myanmar because there's this what's called a free basics program there, which gives citizens limited free internet usage if you create a Facebook account. Although activists still prefer apps that don't require a VPN, like Telegram, but social media is huge for this type of work to even be possible. The report concludes with a call for more of a localized, place-by-place strategy when it comes to lawmakers addressing misinformation, misuses of the internet, things like that. And the piece brings up how internet shutoffs don't really help curb misinformation so much as they harm activists trying to counter it. They make it harder to fact-check, hold those in power to account. They also summarize that reliance on these encrypted apps varies region to region and is used both with the worst and the best intentions imaginable. For our next story, let's go to Thailand. There's this motorcycle rickshaw business in Thailand called the tuk-tuks, which we've talked about on the show before. This is a way that tourists like to go around town, but tourism has taken a huge hit because of the pandemic. And this tuk-tuk industry was really about to go under before K-pop fans teamed up determined to save the day. And they decided to intentionally move their planned birthday advertisements and other advertisements for their faves' work. And instead, pay the tuk-tuk drivers to drive around with banners and other signs promoting their fave. So instead of, like, paying for a billboard ad, they paid for space on the side of a tuk-tuk. Plus, then these drivers got extra tips because so many fans would stop them to take pictures with their vehicles and then tip them. The initiative was actually started by a university student who hoped to help a few dozen drivers. They have now helped over 300. And with around 9,000 registered tuk-tuk drivers in Thailand, 300's not nothing. Before we get back to some of the big negative examples of fandom mobilization, how about some really positive stuff? We have to talk about the BTS ARMY specifically, because there's so much that makes me proud to be ARMY. The work has just truly been incalculable. But here's just a small sample of the many good deeds done by ARMY. Indonesian ARMY visited an orphanage as part of their celebration of a bandiversary. Then in 2021, in honor of Suga's birthday, Indonesian ARMY once again came to the rescue and they donated over 100 coral reef transplants. In Mexico, some ARMY organized this bodyguard campaign. So they would be bodyguards at the Brazil airport for BTS's arrival, making sure their fellow fans stayed in check, stayed civil, polite, safe, etc. After a flood, Nepal Army set up these donation collection spots nationwide for money and goods. Korean Army adopted five whales and also planted trees for RM's birthday. Some ARMY who were on a plane to the U.S. for their recent L.A. shows at SoFi Stadium signed up to be volunteer transporters for rescue dogs who had been looking for forever homes. Then there are the countless times ARMY have donated blood with the hashtag BTSDonorArmy, have retweeted and posted UNICEF's tweets, including the Roar for Change campaign, using the hashtag Roar for Change with $1 for every tweet with that. A million dollars was reached in just a few hours. Then there was the army who partnered with the Korean Federation for Environmental Movement to set up a forest at Han River Park as an early birthday present for V. Fans have sent flower bouquets and other thank you gifts to DJs who play BTS music. Fans have just been helping each other. It's so delightful when you're having a bad day and ask for purple hearts for good luck and the army sends you a bunch of social media messages, a bunch of purple hearts for positivity. It's really, really cool. And of course, there's the Love Myself campaign, which ARMY has embraced wholeheartedly since it came out. Technically, the announcement was October 31st, but really in November 2017, BTS launched officially this Love Myself campaign, an anti-violence initiative with UNICEF, which raised over 106 million won globally within its first two months. That doesn't even include the 500 million Korean won donation Big Hit Entertainment pledge or the percent of proceeds from Love Yourself album sales and merch sales. A UNICEF flagship report called The State of the World's Children 2021 showed Big Hit Music and UNICEF have raised over $3.6 million. One organization I think so highly of is One in an Army. 
They're remarkably efficient at mobilization. After the Love Yourself campaign officially started, a Twitter user, Anna, tweeted just asking, hey, does anyone want to work with Love Myself as an army-led grassroots addition? Want to piggyback off of this current wave of awareness and activism and further it? And it went viral. So a group of volunteers formed, one in an army, from all over the world. Their first big campaign involved raising money for Medical Teams International, but they've gone on to do a whole bunch of other things. The group's official website says, quote, Driven by the idea of using our collective power for global good, we seek out nonprofit organizations worldwide and harness the power of ARMY into giving micro-donations over a one-month period. Our motto, I am one in an ARMY, plays with the idea that many people giving small amounts can create a substantial impact when we work together. Additionally, one in an ARMY will never ask for your personal or bank account details. The only thing we ask is that you fill out our Google form after you make your donation. The form is always linked on our current campaign page, and it asks for your Twitter handle, country, donation amount, and a screenshot of your donation receipt. You are encouraged to strike out any personal details, but please leave your donation amount visible. The data collected on this form will not be shared publicly and is only collected so we can gauge a rough estimate of total contributions. Filling out this form is completely optional, though encouraged, unquote. I included both their official mission statement and their financial info because I just thought that policy really emphasized what their whole message is. It's really not about, it's not a grift, it's not about clout, and it's not even an intense, in-your-face, annoying fundraiser. It's a very just optional opportunity presented to you to lend a helping hand, and that is really honestly what they're in it for. Very, very cool. All right, but we do have to talk about sometimes fans used their internet sleuthing skills and mobilization skills for negative. Examples of like what Jonathan Gray wrote about anti-fandom, which we probably talked about before on the show. The sociology concept of anti-fandom, I love his definition of it, quote, The realm not necessarily of those who are against fandom per se, but of those who strongly dislike a given text or genre, considering it inane, stupid, morally bankrupt, and or aesthetic drivel. Aesthetic drivel. This anti-fandom approach may have implicitly played into the vitriol towards a member of Epic High, Tableau. Tableau from Epic High graduated from Stanford in three and a half years. He got undergrad and MA degrees. People really grew fixated on proving him to be a fraud, claiming that his credential was too good to be true, too much of a flex to be true, and that he must have used his celebrity to get ahead. So a group of anti-fans started a site called We Request the Truth from Tableau in May 2010. And this site analyzed, tracked down, and cataloged all sorts of text, video, and audio that they really got into the nitty-gritty on to try to find holes in his claims about when he went to school and other things they could do to out him as a liar. This actually then expanded, as internet investigations often do, to be super broad encompassing everything from accusations of avoiding military time and faking Canadian citizenship to do so, to what's called nationality laundering, when you basically play up certain aspects of your identity when convenient. Like when you have dual citizenship and defer military enlistment required of South Korean men. They even then started trying to look into these claims they had come to the conclusion existed about financial corruption, plagiarism, even having ties to a global team of certificate brokers. Like he forged his degree because he's part of a secret squad of forgers or something. This was like a Varsity Blues of South Korea situation. Only it wasn't actually real like the Varsity Blues one was. But the same basic ethos driving them was kind of similar to the backlash Varsity Blues scandal in the USA got. Like in the USA, in South Korea, the title of Stanford grad comes with so much prestige. It's viewed as kind of a free pass to the front of the line for a job app or something. People with a prestigious school attached to their name get extra scrutiny from people who didn't get into those schools, who are jealous and or feel like it was just so unfair they got that title when someone else could have deserved it more. So there is some important cultural context here to consider to understand the true outrage over this. 
Again, all because they don't believe he graduated from Stanford in three and a half years. Also worth mentioning for cultural context sake, this site's subscribers were abnormally relatively older, with 70% over the age of 30, meaning that the majority of people really into this case came from certain generations. So they viewed economic mobility, hard work, things like that in a certain cultural light based on the generation they were a part of which we could do a whole separate episode on. But moving on to the end of what happened, police did end up getting involved, which shows the power of internet sleuths. Sometimes they really do get authority figures on a case that they weren't previously on, or even get them to dedicate time and resources to looking up manufactured claims. In October 2010, the police report revealed Tableau's credentials were super legit and 14 rumor spreaders were referred to prosecution for a libel. That same month, NBC premiered a special called Tableau Goes to Stanford, and the anti-fans really didn't like this special, not just because it reached the conclusion that there was no there there, but they claimed this special claimed to be neutral on this issue, but they were so pro-Tableau. But again, inherently, that special was bound to be pro-Tableau, if that's what you want to call it, because the facts are pro-Tableau. They also portrayed incessant anger because the special portrayed them as incessantly angry fans. So they weren't painted in the best light. Would that stop them from repeating this type of thing? Probably not, which says a lot. And some anti-tableau site owners are still working on it. They're still on the case. They still manufacture accusations. The main one that got 180k viewers did close down, though. This case is an interesting microcosm of conflicts between idols and the public when they do a dual citizenship, how it can kind of be a double-edged sword. They can be exotified and admired for their quote-unquote foreignness, or they can be shamed for a perceived lack of loyalty. Yet it always comes into a rock and a hard place between grievances of these people who don't like dual citizenship but like parts of it because of financial interests, general economic interests. So for example, in 2011, this petition circulated from people demanding all Chinese idols leave K-pop groups and leave South Korea if they were doing any current promotional activities there. Get Chinese idols out of K-pop groups. But there was also a big backlash. And so that petition was withdrawn. So it's interesting how this issue is never really settled because it, it ticks off people who view it from opposite ways. You tick off everybody and nobody wins. Then there's the incident in September 2009 when K-pop star J-Bum posted on MySpace some anti-Korean stuff, homophobic slur, stuff I won't repeat here. And it's interesting that he didn't just get outraged for that, but for his framing of it. Because just the, the syntax and stuff, people from South Korea viewed him as really being American. He was using phrasing about I instead of we. Things like that, that those nuances really do add up to a certain impression of foreigners. So people were really annoyed for different reasons over these comments. It was just the talk of the town. Over 760 news articles came out about this incident in four days. 760 in just four days. J-Bum eventually moved back to Seattle, but that prompted a campaign from his fans to bring him back. This kind of thing has happened before, but those efforts usually falter. This occasion actually worked. Flash mobs were used all over the world and uploaded to YouTube. They also used just encouragement on social media, encouraging one another to boost the view count on J-Bum's uploads. Some even bought newspaper ads, pleading with J-Bum to come back. Someone paid for a banner to fly across the sky over his house in Seattle, telling him to come back. And actually, nine months later, he did go back to Korea. And that's so interesting to me because people were mad at him for so many different reasons. But K-pop fans were able to channel the backlash into this martyr-ish narrative enough to convince him to go back. It's so interesting how social media kicked him out of K-pop and social media is what brought him back in. Big picture here. Why are K-pop fans like this? How did they get this powerful? What the heck is going on? 
So really a big picture here, looking at all these examples, there are a couple of similarities among all of them. One is a desire to not just make your favorite idol proud of you, but prouder of you and make your idol the proudest. The spirit of both competitiveness and determination to make your fave the fave of everyone or the best fave. In other countries, it's different. In the USA, you're very much an individual. That is a huge downside. Like if you're living through something like a pandemic and you have an every man for himself spirit when you should be having a collective spirit, but I digress. But yeah, it can have downsides to have an individualism mentality in a country. But one upside of that is that you are yourself. You're responsible for your own words and actions. You're thought of individually. If a family member or a close friend does something wrong, people can say it's okay and forgive you, saying you had nothing to do with it. In some countries, that's not the case. So it's important to remember when a family member or friend gets stuck in a scandal in South Korea and other countries, they're not the only one dragged through the mud in the press. Their whole family is blamed and shamed. I will link to some studies about this effect on my site because it is interesting and so different from the USA socially. But anyway, that collectivism fuels the best and worst of K-pop fandoms. Because if K-pop fans let down their faves, it's like they are personally let down too. The whole fandom you drag down. If you don't put in the collective effort, you failed them and it looks bad on them and their family and their friends and their supporters. It feels the stakes are higher to live up to an expectation of doing enough to show your dedication to them. And there's the sense of pride in beating the competition. This competitiveness is inherent because from the get-go, K-pop was about kind of fostering tribalism while also community, so it could be a double-edged sword. The community is obvious, but then you do have to remember the tribalism aspects here. Like when there are huge multi-artist lineup events, each fandom gets its own section of the audience. It's kind of like a home versus away game. You go to your team's area with your different light stick, your distinct fandom name, your different chanting, different team colors, etc. And there's this collective sense of we have to do good for them. For example, Big Bang had this huge World Cup stadium show this big concert to celebrate their 10-year anniversary, And fans were mad at each other because the place was left a mess, trash everywhere. And it reflected badly on the whole fandom. That kind of thing is common, the sense of you need to hold each other accountable, which again can create community and tension. I view my faves kind of as like relatives in a way, like older siblings. I look up to them, I want to make them proud, and I feel like I need to apologize to them when I don't. It is important to keep in mind that some of that tribalism is fading. Part, I think, naturally because there's just a bigger number of groups. The sheer number of K-pop groups is beyond what it was. It's just exponentially larger than it was in first and second gen. To be still one fandom and not consider yourself part of any other is more rare. It's getting harder to do. Second of all, there are a lot of times where fandoms do just come together. Like, for example, in early 2020, the fires in Australia motivated different K-pop fandoms to pool their donations. So those unifying moments do happen. Another interesting aspect of this is how diverse K-pop fans are, not just demographically, but skill-wise, perspective-wise. For example, when it comes to age, it's not just a bunch of digital natives. It is a lot of young people who can utilize computer skills to promote their faves online. But it also is a lot of people old enough to have full-time jobs as IT people or graphic designers, people with degrees in these computer skills too. So different cultural awareness and different skill sets from different age groups coming together, that's where the big impact comes from. Plus, the older members of fandoms really help, frankly, with the financial aspect of being a K-pop fan too, maybe funding travel, group orders, things like that. And I cannot, of course, just dismiss the racial diversity in K-pop fandoms and the impact of specifically Black K-pop fans because it really is interesting how much of our culture, our social media lingo and memes and stuff generates from Black Twitter and other Black users on social media. 
very talented creatives who they often have their ideas co-opted. TikTok dance trends, another thing black creators do a lot that people forget about. So they help provide some further context indirectly or directly for memes and other material that helps promote and spread the word about our favorite K-pop artists. So they do a lot of unrecognized soft power work and also, of course, just help remind us of the importance of cultural competence. They have taken on, unfairly, they shouldn't have to, but they have taken on the role of educating other fiends about why we need to call out certain behavior, appropriating certain black hairstyles and things like that to keep our faves accountable. The other big reason for our big impact as K-pop fans is basically the fan com. Fan plus company. It's a term that was used to describe the Web 2 market of ideas. Basically, you've probably heard a lot of talk about Web 3 these days, which is basically just a way of saying our new era of the internet, which is decentralized. And everyone has a more democratized role in owning stuff. The concept of NFTs, so they claim, is kind of based on Web3 ideals of decentralization, which bring a host of issues, like how do you regulate this stuff, but the point being that people see Web3 as a way to put more power in the hands of individuals. Web2, in my opinion, was more about putting power in the hands of communities and groups. And it's so interesting how this fan com that really took off in the past decade or so is getting at the root of what the internet was always supposed to be about. Bring people together, finding a way to connect people from anywhere over anything. That incredible community building is what K-pop is all about and what the web was really supposed to be about. K-pop is not immune from the downsides of the Web 2 world of conflicts, feuds, etc., but it also is living up to some of the promises of the internet overall. We are these unofficial PR agents for our faves and for their values, and we put in hours of work to promote our faves. That new view of PR agent and client between fans and idols, that's what fancom is all about. Making homemade merch and selling it online, for example. A whole economy and culture has kind of formed online around any fandom. And K-pop in particular is equipped to utilize the digital world for promoting our faves because it kind of grew from the internet in the first place. That's how you met other K-pop fans. Before it became well known that you can probably find fellow K-pop fans in your non-South Korean country. Before you realized they were all around you, you had to go online to find them. Then there is the fact that K-pop global popularity owes a lot to the media. YouTube clips were repurposed and became the fodder for social media posts and conversation topics elsewhere. The nature of K-pop fandoms is inherently global and primed to stay a powerful force given the internet and what the internet was designed to facilitate exactly this kind of behavior. I hope it gave you a lot to think about what K-pop fans are all about. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. Please rate and review the show if you haven't already. At least rate it. Give it five stars, please. It takes five seconds. Thank you all. It really helps with visibility for the show. Use that digital power I've been talking about to help out an independent creator. I'll link to a bunch of studies and reports about every instance I talked about today on my site as usual. So subscribe, howtostand.substack.com for more. Thank you guys so much for listening as always, and I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye everyone!